The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation, strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. A group of frightened, confused shipwreck survivors gathered on a beach. Blue skies, sandy shores, and calm waters suggested that the sailors were in paradise. But they knew better. They were being held captive by a vengeful sorcerer named Prospero. Fans of Elizabethan literature will recognize this as the third act of William Shakespeare's comedy, The Tempest. But few recognize that the play is about more than fictional romance, destiny, and magic. The earliest manuscripts of The Tempest are riddled with misspellings and errors. But they aren't the simple mistakes of an artist rushing through his work. They spell a secret message hidden in the midst of Prospero's Act Four monologue, one that implies Shakespeare belonged to a secret society of mystics and alchemists. That society, called the Rosicrucians, claimed that they've been teaching magical secrets to a select few initiates for thousands of years. According to Shakespeare and the Rosicrucians, sorcerers like Prospero are much more than playful spirits of fiction. Mystics and their magic are real. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on the Rosicrucians, a society of mystics and alchemists that first publicly appeared in Europe around 1614. They have roots in the teachings of ancient Egyptians and Greeks, and claim they have powers of telepathy, prognostication, the ability to heal any wound, and even the ability to turn lead into gold. 
This week, we'll talk about the first public mention of the Rosicrucian faith in the early 17th century. We'll also explore the life of their alleged founder, Christian Rosenkreutz, and debate whether he was a historical figure or a hoax. Next week, we'll explore the spread of Rosicrucian beliefs after the 17th century and beyond. We'll document how their reach expanded until nearly every government, cooperation, and political movement in the Western world had at least one Rosicrucian. They've shown up at America's founding, in Nazi Germany, and in Haitian brainwashing cults. Today, you probably read Rosicrucian authors, study Rosicrucian scientists, and worship using Rosicrucian practices, all without realizing it. And maybe that's exactly how they want it. Officially, the Rosicrucians are not a Christian sect. Their beliefs share some features with Christian theology, including a reverence for a creator God, Jesus, and the Virgin Mary. But it's their differences that play a key role in Rosicrucian history and philosophy. At the time of Jesus' death, around 33 CE, Christianity was a fringe group with maybe a couple thousand followers. And after the Roman Emperor Nero made the religion illegal in 64 CE, the group's growth and spread is difficult to track. Complicating matters further, the earliest Christians had no central organizing authority, set doctrine, or writing that were considered canon. As a result, hundreds of sects cropped up, each with a slightly different understanding of the Bible and of Jesus' nature. This became a major problem when Christianity was made legal within the Roman Empire in 313 CE. Suddenly, Christians could openly worship, but nobody could agree on a unified doctrine or tradition. It wasn't until 367 CE that a church leader named Athanasius tried to define what a Christian was and which texts they should consider sacred. Athanasius is credited with compiling the letters, histories, poetry, and gospels that today comprise Christianity's holy text, the canonical Bible. But what of people who practiced versions of Christianity that didn't fit those standards? They were dubbed heretics or believers in a false faith. They were severely punished for their divergent beliefs. Thousands of sects were considered heretical at the time, too many for us to get into now. The only ones you need to know about for this episode are the Gnostics, or people who believed that salvation lay in secret, hidden knowledge. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. You may recognize it as the root word of prognosticate, meaning knowledge of the future or agnostic, a person who believes nothing can be known about God. In the 300s and 400s CE, Gnostic was a broad term applied to anyone who believed that they had secret knowledge about the nature of the world, the divine, or both. Some Gnostics had beliefs similar to those of Orthodox Christianity, but they thought they knew secrets about Jesus' life or his teachings. Other Gnostic heretics based their practices on other religious traditions entirely. No matter where their faith came from, all Gnostics faced persecution. Of course, according to church founders like Athanasius, Gnostics weren't really Christians at all. They'd been deceived by supposedly false teachings. And in order to save their eternal souls, true Christian missionaries gave them a choice, convert or die. 
to protect themselves and their hidden knowledge, Gnostic secret societies began cropping up. Believers wanted to share information with one another, but they couldn't reveal their real values until a newcomer had proven their trustworthiness. After all, an indiscreet worshiper could get their brethren arrested, tortured, or even killed. So converts had to pass tests, perform rituals, and undergo initiations. These societies, sometimes called mystery schools, supposedly had their roots in ancient Egypt. Some Gnostics claimed that their ancient, arcane beliefs persisted underground from ancient times, through the fall of the Roman Empire and up to the middle of the second millennia CE, or Enlightenment. The world changed with the dawn of the era of Enlightenment. The mid-17th century was marked by new ways of thinking and new social orders. For the first time in over a thousand years, the people of Europe turned away from the Catholic Church and moved towards a philosophy that celebrated human rationality and ingenuity. The world seemed ripe for new ways of learning and thinking. Scientists were rebelling against traditional church teachings as they found secular ways of understanding the world. And ironically, the rise of science brought with it a rise in mysticism and spiritualism. Although these movements may seem fundamentally at odds, they came from the same impulse, a desire to understand the world outside of a Catholic lens. After more than a millennium of suppression, Gnostic doctrine could see the light of day without triggering arrests or violence. And in the midst of this freedom, an anonymous pamphlet called Fama Fraternitatis of the Meritorious Order of the Rosy Cross hit intellectual circles with a bang. Fama, or its English title, Fame, was an anonymous missive published and disseminated between roughly 1610 and 1614. It's very difficult to say with any certainty how many copies were printed or how they were distributed. This is in part because Fama caused an uproar of sudden public interest in mystical secret societies. Everyone wanted to claim some kind of connection to the society, and numerous people announced they'd read early copies of Fama, but most of those claims could never be verified or disproven. According to the unidentified author, Fama was distributed in five languages throughout Europe, but only Latin and German copies have ever been discovered. Its contents were appealing to 17th century readers. The author was said to belong to the Fraternity of the Rosy Cross, a secret Gnostic organization dedicated to mysticism and magical practices. According to Fama, the society had been operating for centuries, and they were finally ready to go public. As Fama told the story, the Fraternity of the Rosy Cross had been founded by a man who was simply listed as CRC. In the late 1400s, he went to his deathbed, encouraging his followers to keep his secrets for a full century. Meanwhile, they'd continue his work in the shadows, preparing the world for a day 100 years later, when it was ready to accept the mystical truth about CRC's magic powers. As for what that magic entailed, the Fama wasn't particularly detailed. It focused more on CRC's biography. And later, a follow-up pamphlet was published that was similarly oblique about the nature of magic and only further elaborated on CRC's life. Like the first pamphlet, the Confession of the Fraternity of R.C., or Confessio, didn't include the name of its author, 
but it did manage to keep the fraternity of the Rosie Cross in the public eye and stoke further interest. Then a third and final letter appeared two years later in 1616. It was titled, The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. This epistle differed from the first two in a few key ways. Most notably, it was the first to use the term Rosicrucian to refer to members of the Fraternity of the Rosy Cross. It also gave the elusive CRC a name, Christian Rosenkreutz, and the designation stuck. To recount the claims made in the three texts, we have to go back to 1378, to an era when a wayward monk named Christian Rosenkreutz uncovered the hidden history of Jesus Christ and learned how to turn lead into gold. Up next, we explore the life of CRC, Crucian Movement. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Now back to the story. For most of the Dark Ages, religious beliefs that were incompatible with Catholic tradition were illegal. Practitioners of Gnosticism had to operate in secret or face public shunning or even death. But between 1610 and 1616, the three anonymous publications, Fama Fraternitatis of the Meritorious Order of the Rosy Cross, Confessio, and Chemical Wedding, made quite a public stir. These pamphlets told the story of a monk with mystical powers, dubbed CRC. In Fama, the details of CRC's life were rather sparse, but the follow-up texts fleshed out the details and even gave him a name. Christian Rosenkreutz. Fair warning, what follows is based almost entirely on these manifestos. That being said, Rosenkreutz's life began in Germany in 1378. All that Fama says about Rosenkreutz's home life is that his parents were noble, but he grew up in poverty. Somehow, when he was five years old, Rosenkreutz moved into a cloister to be raised by monks. Later, Rosicrucians developed their own oral traditions, speculating why. Some hypothesize that Rosenkreutz's parents couldn't afford to care for him, so they willingly gave him up to the monastery. 
Other versions of the story are more dramatic. According to one account, Rosenkreutz family practiced a pseudo-Christian heresy. When the people of their village learned of their unorthodox ways, they turned on the family. And on a cold winter night in 1383, the locals slaughtered them en masse, all except one. Five-year-old Christian Rosenkreutz, the only survivor. Luckily, he'd befriended a monk who lived in the community. When a frightened Rosenkreutz turned to the monk for help, he took pity on the boy. He gave Rosenkreutz a safe place to sleep that night. And afterward, the monastery became the boy's permanent home. Whether Rosenkreutz was an orphan or a victim of poverty, there's some consistency in that he spent a decade in the monastery. He learned Catholic doctrine and prepared to spend a life in the priesthood. But Rosenkreutz was never content to simply accept the Bible's teachings at face value. He had a curious mind and longed to learn about the wider world without having to frame it through the lens of Catholicism. So around 1393, 15-year-old Rosenkreutz journeyed to Damascus in pursuit of knowledge. During a multi-year stint in the city, Rosenkreutz connected with a secret society of Muslim mystics. He allegedly learned magical secrets that had been suppressed in the Christian world, including the truth about Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church has always maintained that Jesus was both man and God. But according to Rosenkreutz's teachers, Jesus had been a mortal man. He was no God, but he was far from ordinary. He was allegedly a great mystic who channeled the Spirit of God in order to bring the Lord's revelations to humanity. And according to the mystics, Jesus wasn't the only spiritual leader to bring divine revelation. Ancient Egyptians, ancient Greeks, Jewish Kabbalists, Buddhists, Hindus, and members of every other faith had all received the same divine secret knowledge. Of course, the Fama didn't reveal what that secret knowledge was, just that it had to do with science and mathematics. The Muslim mystics also taught Rosenkreutz how to cure any illness through the arcane art of alchemy, or the ability to turn cheap metals, usually lead, into gold. At this point, we need to pause to talk about the significance of alchemy. In the 1600s, when Fama was published, alchemy had powerful religious and philosophical connotations that went far beyond just chemistry. While scientists in the Dark Ages didn't understand the atomic structure of gold or other elements, they understood that gold and lead were fundamentally different substances. Turning something valueless like lead into something beautiful and expensive like gold was considered a powerful form of transmutation. Some people believed that if an alchemist understood how to create gold, he could use that underlying principle to transmute anything into anything else. The sick could be made well, the dead could be made living, and a mortal could be made into a god. So when Fama claimed that Rosenkreutz had the power of alchemy, it wasn't just suggesting he could make his followers rich. It implied that he carried with him the secrets of the divine. Rosenkreutz wanted to share his revelations with the world. But when he returned to Europe and discussed his findings in Spain, he was mocked and accused of lying. 
even when he demonstrated his powers firsthand, his critics refused to believe their eyes. He became such a laughingstock, it was impossible for Rosenkreutz to gather new followers. So, when he went home to Germany in shame, Rosenkreutz knew he had to disseminate his information more carefully. He couldn't spread the message far and wide. Instead, he had to carefully select worthwhile disciples. He found four monks in the same cloister he'd grown up in. These were trusted friends, open-minded spiritualists who wouldn't reject Rosenkreutz's claims. If you were one of those early initiates, Rosenkreutz would require you to devote yourself to intensive studies in chemistry and philosophy before he'd reveal his secrets. When Rosenkreutz determined that you were ready, he'd permit you to join the fraternity of the Rosy Cross. It began with a simple initiation ritual. There were no robes, no chants, no secret headquarters. All of these features would just attract attention. Instead, in a quiet but solemn ceremony, Rosenkreutz urged you to agree to six oaths. First, the work of the order had to remain secret. You could heal the sick, but otherwise were forbidden from demonstrating your powers to the uninitiated public. Second, you promised not to wear special monk's robes or any other visual sign that you belong to a secret order. Third, on a date called the Day of the Sea, all of the order were to gather or provide a valid reason not to attend. Fourth, you had to understand that you couldn't serve the Fraternity of the Rosy Cross forever. Before you died or retired, you had to find a new initiate to take your place. Fifth, members would recognize one another because you all used the term RC, standing for Rosy Cross, as a sort of code phrase. Sixth, and finally, you agreed that the order would remain utterly secret for at least 100 years after Rosenkreutz's death. With these vows, Rosenkreutz's followers were formally initiated into the fraternity of the Rosy Cross. From there, you could learn of Rosenkreutz's sacred knowledge, including how to make gold out of ordinary, cheaper metals like lead or brass, which meant members could get rich quick. Beyond that, the records don't say much of what Rosenkreutz or the first members of the fraternity did. Fama claims that all the members of the fraternity lived long lives free of poverty or disease, thanks to their alchemical abilities. It also suggests that Rosenkreutz cured the Earl of Norfolk's leprosy. To that end, the Rosicrucian founder lived to the advanced age of 106 before dying in 1484. His followers all agreed that it would be wrong to bury Rosenkreutz in the dark earth after he'd brought the light of knowledge to them. So they filled a cavern with hundreds of candles until it was as bright as the sun, then laid him to rest. The death of Rosenkreutz marked an important turning point for the order. Upon initiation, every monk swore to keep his teachings secret for about a century after his death. So you see, Fama was a fulfillment of their sixth oath. It was published roughly 130 years after his passing. And as Rosenkreutz had predicted, it was now safe to share his story. Not only did Fama reveal the existence of the Fraternity of the Rosy Cross, it ended with a call for new members. As philosopher and writer Colin Wilson summarized it, 
This mysterious pamphlet goes on to invite all interested parties to join the Brotherhood and tells them that they only have to make their interest known, either by word of mouth or in writing, and the Brotherhood will hear about it and probably make contact. This is, in itself, a suggestion that the Brotherhood has magical powers, perhaps some crystal ball that will enable them to tune in to anyone who is genuinely interested. The invitation sparked immense interest. Countless readers wrote into newspapers, publicly expressing their interest in learning about the fraternity of the Rosy Cross. But there's no record that any of those requests were answered. There's no evidence that any of the claims in Fama, Confessio, or Chemical Wedding were true. In fact, no historian today or in the 17th century could provide a shred of proof that Christian Rosenkreutz ever existed, or that anyone had even heard of him prior to 1610. The anonymous pamphlets soon came to be derided as a scam. Several elements in the letters, including the promise of long-hidden secrets, allusions to alchemy, and hints at a powerful secret society, seemed designed to play into cultural trends and capture the attention of naive readers. It was just a little too convenient that the anonymous writer would reveal an ancient, mysterious, magical secret society right when hidden histories and mysticism were in vogue. The timeliness of the publications was suspect, but it also excited many readers who didn't want to dismiss the Rosicrucians' existence. And while skeptics debated amongst themselves, self-identified Rosicrucians began to emerge. It was a shocking development, seemingly proving the existence of the secret society, except each individual's claim was debatable. In 1615, Julianus de Campis wrote an open response to Fama, requesting more information about the secret order. He clarified, however, that he didn't need to be initiated as a Rosicrucian, he already was one. But members were so rare, he was eager to connect with other practitioners. Of course, there's no hard evidence to back up Compi's allegations that he was a member of the order, and later, self-identified members had even more dubious claims. A man named Julius de Sperber wrote several essays analyzing and elaborating on the doctrines alluded to in Fama, Confessio, and Chemical Wedding. Another, named Irenaeus Agnostus, publicly requested to join the Rosicrucians in 1615 and later declared that he'd been inducted. Rodtix Brodifer wrote a treatise on Rosicrucian alchemy in 1617, further formalizing the public perception of Rosicrucian philosophy. But each of these authors brought controversy of their own. Rodtix Brodifer is believed to be a pseudonym, and some historians theorize that Julianus de Campis and Julius de Sperber were the same person using different pen names. So while true believers pointed to the frenzy of new Rosicrucian publications as proof of their existence, critics continued to maintain that the entire secret society was a hoax perpetuated by a few men. Michael Meyer, a royal physician, was fascinated by the Rosicrucians and sought to prove whether there was any truth to their historical claims. He dug deep into research and published his findings in a 1617 piece called Apologeticus. The truth of Meyer's relationship with Rosicrucianism is muddy. By most accounts, he was caught up in the same rosy cross fervor that swept through Europe after the publication of Fama, Confessio, and Chemical Wedding. 
Meyer grew obsessed with the Rosicrucians. Depending on who you ask, he eventually joined the order, uncovered their secrets, or made up an elaborate history because he couldn't bear to admit they didn't exist. According to Meyer, Rosicrucians shared the same core values as the ancient Egyptians who worshipped Osiris and Isis, the god and goddess of the dead. Egyptian priests unlocked the secrets of alchemy and kept the knowledge alive in the ancient Greek empire. From there, the arcane knowledge made its way to Persian Magi and eventually to Christian Rosenkreutz. So Meyer's assertions gave Rosicrucianism roots that were as ancient as human society itself. But his publications did something even more important than give Rosicrucians a history to latch onto. Unlike the anonymously published Fama, Confessio, and Chemical Wedding, Meyer signed his own name to Apologeticus, and as the former personal physician to Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, Meyer lent an air of credibility to claims about the Rosicrucians. Since so many people were now claiming that they were members of the order, and had been the whole time, would-be converts flocked together. In 1615, a church reformer named Landgrave Maurice founded one of the world's first confirmed Rosicrucian chapters in Cassel. Within a decade, branches appeared in Amsterdam, The Hague, and Paris. And in true Rosicrucian fashion, each of these chapters made claims that couldn't be verified. For instance, that their founders had been inducted by one of Rosenkreutz's disciples, or that they'd been founded before the publication of Fama. But no logical argument could stop the spread of the society. In fact, one of their early leaders, a man named Andre, even made a shocking revelation that threatened to take the organization down. He publicly announced that he'd been the author of Chemical Wedding, and the entire movement was a hoax. In fact, he claimed that he'd intentionally made many Rosicrucian doctrines sound utterly ridiculous, in the hope that people would recognize the obvious satire. Other Rosicrucian leaders were quick to condemn Andre. Initiates were left with little sense of who to trust, so people mostly believed what they wanted to believe. And even after Andre's scandal, Rosicrucian chapters were rarely short on new initiates. Rosicrucianism was bigger than any one man or any one set of texts. It functioned like a crowdsourced belief system. Since the Fama, Confessio, and Chemical Wedding were so vague, and since so many competing voices had tried to write about Rosicrucian beliefs afterward, there was no central dogma. They even had differing standards for who could join. Some chapters were men only, while others were more inclusive. Each Rosicrucian chapter taught something a little different. Some were so secretive, we still don't know exactly what they believed. But we can guess at some general broad strokes based on their publications. Rosicrucians claimed they had secret knowledge. They shared the same Gnostic roots. Most suggested the secret knowledge had to do with the purported divinity of Jesus Christ, the revelation that he was just a man, or a disembodied god, or some other belief that ran counter to Christian theology. They all promised that a person could unlock spiritual truths through scientific study, usually the study of alchemy. Some claimed to offer magic powers. Beyond that, Rosicrucianism largely meant whatever a new convert wanted it to mean. 
It was a time of flourishing for mystics, and in less than a century, every city would have a Rosicrucian headquarters because Rosicrucians publicly advertised their support of scientific advancement. They attracted the wisest and brightest minds of their generation. They became so influential that they even allegedly birthed another secret society, one of the most powerful of all time, the Freemasons. Next, we'll discuss Rosicrucian ties to Francis Bacon, William Shakespeare, and the Freemasons. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. Between 1610 and 1616, a trio of anonymous pamphlets were published. They told the story of a secret society of mystics that had allegedly operated underground for nearly 200 years. As we mentioned before, these three letters were the first indication that Christian Rosenkreutz, or the Rosicrucians, existed at all. Later writers tried to elaborate on the claims made in the missives, but there's no concrete evidence that anyone had ever heard of Christian Rosenkreutz or the Rosicrucian order prior to 1610. That didn't stop dozens of people from claiming they were members, nor did it prevent writers like Michael Meyer or physician and mystic Robert Flood from publishing possibly fictionalized histories of the fraternity of the Rosy Cross. And with each new book or claim, more chapters sprung up, professing to be the original organization. Eventually, it stopped mattering whether Rosicrucians were a hoax or not. By the mid-17th century, they were a real secret society with real political power. Within a generation, countless Rosicrucian sects had blossomed all over Europe, There were dozens, maybe even hundreds, by the early 1700s. One of the most notable chapters was the Brotherhood of the Rosy and Golden Cross. This chapter had a complicated hierarchy, promising initiates that they could unlock new, more powerful forms of magic each time they achieved a new rank. According to essayist Thomas de Quincey, Members of the Brotherhood used metaphors to explain their complicated echelons and suborders, especially the metaphor of building a fortress. People were stones, and members of the order were living stones who shaped the world around themselves. As Robert Flood explained, a living stone is a mason who builds himself up into the wall as a part of the temple of human nature. 
Based on this passage, De Quincey and other historians believe the Rosicrucian Brotherhood of the Rosie and Golden Cross eventually became the Freemasons. Both societies focused on uncovering secret knowledge for the betterment of humanity. Both blended scientific pursuits with spiritualist or religious philosophy. And tellingly, one of the highest ranks a Mason can achieve is the Rose Cross degree, and it's signified with the image of a red rose on a cross, the same sigil that Rosenkreutz followers used. Today, many Masons quibble over whether their order really sprouted from the Rosicrucians, and the evidence for their connection is weak. In fact, the earliest references to Masonic secret societies date back to 1390, well before the formation of the Brotherhood of the Rosie and Golden Cross. On the other hand, we don't know much about how the Masons operated or how they were structured prior to the 1700s. So while it's unlikely that the Masons were birthed from the Rosicrucians, they may have evolved and adopted many Rosicrucian practices. But even without a Masonic connection, Rosicrucians were massively influential. They've counted among their members some of history's greatest philosophers, politicians, and thinkers. Trailblazers, who have probably shaped the way you think about the world today. Men like Francis Bacon. Bacon's accomplished career includes time in the British Parliament, a stint as Attorney General, and numerous scientific publications. He was most notable for his insistence on testing accepted theories and knowledge for himself. Today, Bacon is credited with inventing the scientific method. And his writings suggested a connection to Rosicrucian beliefs. His 1627 piece, New Atlantis, describes a fictional house of the learned, a utopian home to wise men who have uncovered powerful secrets. Inhabitants use advanced technologies, similar to modern telephones, movie projectors, and airplanes. Meanwhile, all of the servants who work in the House of the Learned wear red crosses as their sigils. Bacon also includes numerous Masonic symbols in New Atlantis, although some geometric sigils like the sun, a cube, and a star are generic enough that they might have just been basic mathematical signs. In addition, he included ciphers and certain phrases that are believed to have been used in Rosicrucian teachings within his own novels. Bacon and the Rosicrucians were both supposedly interested in numerology, and Bacon frequently gave his characters and fictional places names that carried meaningful numerological values, or names that had the same value as Francis Bacon. Given this, it's unlikely that Bacon happened to stumble on the exact same notable words and phrases that the secret society used. Even if Bacon was never inducted, he very well might have studied under Rosicrucian teachers. Regardless, Bacon is widely alleged to have been a Rosicrucian. Meaning, if you learn the scientific method in school or work in a STEM field today, you've probably been influenced by Rosicrucian teachings. And the arts are no different. Today, a careful analysis of William Shakespeare's plays suggests that he too followed the order of the Rosy Cross. The reasoning is a bit convoluted, but it all comes down to odd spellings and layouts for his poetry. Now, William Shakespeare was uneducated and probably wouldn't have used perfect spelling or grammar, but some of the errors in his writings were so egregious, historians believe that these mistakes weren't mistakes at all. They were keys to decrypt secret messages. 
For example, one copy of Prospero's monologue in Act 4 of The Tempest misspells fabric as F-N-B-R-I-C-K. It's very unlikely that even an uneducated writer would mistake an A for an N. But if a reader pulls the offending N from the word, and similarly outlandish misspellings from the rest of the act, a secret message appears. Francis Bacon. For a cipher with a more explicit Rosicrucian connection, in the early 1600s, Shakespeare published his first book of sonnets. It featured a dedication to T.T., spelled capital T period, capital T period. T.T. is widely believed to be Thomas Thorpe, the publisher. Except during that era, it was very uncommon to use periods and abbreviations that way which has led some literary analysts to presume that TT doesn't refer to a person, but instead a code. Regularly placed dots or periods were often used in encrypted Rosicrucian texts, so it's not clear what TT is supposed to mean, but it might be a hint that decoders should look more deeply at the punctuation within the book. Likewise, a collection of Shakespeare's plays was signed AA, a pair of letters with Rosicrucian significance because they reference the Greek gods of healing and wisdom, Apollo and Athena. We can't reasonably say who AA was, but we can suppose that AA may not have been a person at all, but another sign that the text included hidden messages. As for what those messages say, theorists haven't gotten that far yet. At most, people seem to agree that Shakespeare may have been a Rosicrucian, or at least might have used some of their ciphers to disseminate secret messages. Beyond that, though, the hidden meaning is anyone's guess. And it's hard to prove a connection between Shakespeare and the Rosicrucians when you examine his biography. He died soon after the three pamphlets were published, before the fraternity really hit the mainstream. There's little evidence that he ever knew or closely interacted with any Rosicrucians, let alone joined the elite society. So maybe all those hidden codes and ciphers came from someone other than William Shakespeare, Someone who lived a bit longer and had more opportunity to get embedded in Rosicrucian culture. In fact, the Rosicrucian connection is one of many pieces of evidence critics have used to argue that Shakespeare didn't really author the plays and poems that are credited to him. Perhaps it was someone like Francis Bacon, who had a more explicit connection to the group. Remember that hidden message in The Tempest, Francis Bacon? perhaps a subtle way to take credit for his work. Regardless of their authorship, Romeo and Juliet and A Midsummer Night's Dream and other Shakespeare classics are taught in almost every high school in the Western world. Shakespeare and Bacon are just two notable early Rosicrucians. American founding fathers, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin were members. So was Walt Disney, Thomas Paine, Napoleon Bonaparte, Michael Faraday, Claude Debussy. Rosicrucians have influenced nearly every aspect of modern culture. Members shaped our way of understanding science, storytelling, and spirituality. So much so that you've probably consumed some Rosicrucian material today without even realizing it. It only took a century for the Order of the Rosy Cross to transform from a probable hoax to a cultural force to be reckoned with. And the Rosicrucians still exist today, 
any person with an internet connection can pay a monthly or annual fee and count themselves a member of the world's largest branch, the ancient mystical order, Rosi Crucis. Which leads us to wonder, what more do they have to accomplish? According to former member Pierre Freeman, Rosicrucians have warped into a power-hungry brainwashing cult, recruiting and entrapping members for their own advancement. He counted himself a Rosicrucian for 24 years before undergoing a lengthy deprogramming process and writing about his experiences in a pair of memoirs. Today, he warns interested applicants that Rosicrucianism might destroy their lives. Conspiracy theorist David Icke takes things one step further, arguing that Rosicrucians hope to destabilize the secular world to advance their New Age agenda. He's argued that the Rosicrucians, in alliance with the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and more, are secretly plotting to unite the globe under their evil New World Order. And authors Michael Bygent, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln argue that Rosicrucians are still protecting hidden ancient knowledge about Jesus Christ's true nature. Perhaps Jesus left a line of descendants who the Rosicrucians have been protecting for millennia. Is the society what it purports to be? A peaceful group of mystics intent on unlocking ancient secrets? Or are they leveraging their incredible power and reach for global domination. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode on the Rosicrucians. We'll explore some of the most compelling theories about how the fraternity of the Rosie Cross has leveraged their reach to reshape the world in their image. For more information on the Rosicrucians, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Riddle of the Rosicrucians by Manly P. Hall and A New and Authentic History of the Rosicrucians by Father Wittemans, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.